Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. On this episode, we'll feature the first part of a fascinating two-part interview with best-selling author Kitty Kelly. She's written unauthorized biographies of such influential figures as Frank Sinatra, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, and President George Herbert Walker Bush and family. Kitty Kelly was interviewed on February 7th, 2020, in D.C. by fellow biographer John, better known as Jack Farrell. We are here with the magnificent Kitty Kelly, who, other than maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has sold more words of biography than any other person <laughs> in history. <laughs> and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote unauthorized biographies. As, as do you. As, as do, do you. I. Um, but you started out as a newspaper woman. I did. I started out, Jack, on the editorial page of the Washington Post as the researcher. And so if somebody wanted to write a scathing editorial about the Farm Bill, you were the person who had to Well, I would go to editorial page conferences every morning, and I would sit there, and there were six writers, I think, and they would discuss what the editorials were going to be. Were they going to be on the ICC? Were they going to take a stand on... The war in Vietnam, anyway, I would take notes during the editorial page conference, and then I would go out to get research for the writers to bulk up their editorials. And sometimes they'd say, will you look up this or will you do that? And I remember years and years ago after the New York Times had gotten the Pentagon Papers. I used to come in to work very, very early, and Ben Bradley was always there early, and I'd end up going down and getting him coffee. And I remember walking in and saying, Oh, Mr. Bradley, you must be so angry. Yes, I am. Then he went on to describe the New York Times, and the next day I came in and Ben Bradley said, Come to my house. Get me all the research on Pentagon Papers. Well, I didn't know what part of the Pentagon Papers. Anyway, I went to the library, got all the research I could, took it to Bradley's house in Georgetown, and I remember for the next five days laying out pages and pages for Don Oberdorfer and Murray Martyr and all of those that were writing on the Pentagon Papers. So I do remember that job very well. And then... You went off as a freelancer, and somehow you wrote this best-selling biography of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And at that point, were you hooked on biography? Did a light go off? Did your did your publisher go and say, you've got a niche now, let's stick with it? The biography on Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis was the first, and I was always fascinated by her. But I said I didn't want to write it because there had been, I think, 32 books already written at that point. We're talking about the 70s. And they didn't really give you the essence of who she was. And the publisher said, go ahead, give me the essence. Well, 
I tried, and I loved doing it, and I loved telling a life story and folding the history of the times around that life. So yes, I did become hooked on biography. John F. Kennedy once said, the thing that makes history so fascinating and biography so interesting is that struggle to find out what's he really like. And I've sort of used that as the motto for each one that I've done. However, I must admit that after Jackie O, and it did become a huge bestseller, the publisher said, you've got to follow up with another biography of a woman. And I don't know that I'd listen to that advice now, but I was young and new, and I listened to it, and I then wrote the book that I disliked the most, and that was on Elizabeth Taylor. What I tried to do was write a biography about the biggest star at MGM, tell the history and the story of the studio system, which had really formed all of our fantasies, those of us born in that era. And I got a little bored because her life, beautiful as she was, talented as she was, seemed to be mostly jewelry stores and hospital rooms. And I might have missed the essence of Elizabeth Taylor. Was being a writer something that you knew you always wanted to do when the nuns were teaching you back there in Minnesota? How'd you know I was educated (laughs) by the nuns? Um, No. I still want to learn how to write. It doesn't come easily. (laughs) I'm not one of those that sits down and it just pours out, and you can hardly wait to craft the sentences I'm not one of those writers, but I am in awe of writing, and I'm in awe of writers, and I wanted to be one. So describe your research process and how it's changed, if, if at all, over your career. Well, I went on to write other biographies, and I hired a full-time researcher, and the two of us would work together. And I guess the first thing I would do for a biography is sit down and do a chronology of the life. By that I mean start from the year of birth 1917 and bring it up to 2020. And this chronology would be really factual so that when I would come to interview you, You might say to me, well, I knew George Bush for 50 years, but you might have only worked for him for four years. And I would have a chronology there. And you'd look at it and see a date, 1982. Well, that didn't happen. I remember such and such and so and so. So it's really a help, not just to me to organize, but it's a help to whoever I interview. That's a really uh, good tip. I had never thought of that, and yet uh, well, uh, it, it makes sense. And, and doesn't it? it? It would seem that that would provoke um, memories. And, and I found when I was doing the Sinatra book, I'd bring the chronology, and people would say, I was there at the time. That didn't happen that way. This one would say, and I would check out their stories, and sometimes I would let all three stories stand in the book. And it made sense to do it that way because people's recollections do differ. Yeah. 
one of the more controversial books I wrote. Everyone warned me. They said, you're writing about Frank Sinatra without his permission. He sued me before I had ever written a word, kept the lawsuit going for one year, and I remember when I first got sued, I called the president of Washington Independent Writers, a group that I belong to, and helped support. And she said, wait, let me get this right, Kitty. You've just been sued by Frank Sinatra, and you haven't written a word? And I said, no, I haven't written. Oh, she said, we've been looking for this lawsuit for years, she said, because this is a pure lawsuit that we can stand up on the First Amendment and not have to deal with any baggage. And God bless them. I had the support of all of those groups, and it made all the difference in the world because the publisher was ready to back off. Mm -hmm. The lawsuit was based on Frank Sinatra's contention that he and he alone had the right to write his own book or someone that he authorized. He was using a used car salesman statute in Los Angeles, in the state of California. And that's where he filed his lawsuit. And he kept it going for an entire year. Legal fees over $100,000. And at one point, Sinatra's lawyers called my lawyers and said, we have a tape recording of Kitty Kelly calling up someone and misrepresenting herself and saying that Frank told me to call I'm doing this with Mr. Sinatra's authorization. Well, you can imagine. My lawyers called the publisher. The publisher was horrified. I was horrified. And I remember calling my husband. I was researching in New York, and he was in Washington. And I said, they have this tape recording of me. Anyway, I was hysterical. And he said, you didn't do it. I said, you don't know what, maybe at two in the morning, maybe I was, you know, when someone says they have a tape recording, it's a lot different than saying, well, here, I have my notes. Anyway, the Sinatra lawyers, the Kitty Kelly lawyers, the publishing lawyers all met in Washington at my house. Everybody walked in. And at $650 an hour, they were all chatting. I couldn't stand it. Finally, the tape recorder is on the coffee table, and I said, let's go, let's hear it. And do you remember that singer, Boy George? Yeah. It sounded like Boy George crossed with Minnie Mouse. (laughs) And you could see the relief (laughs) on everybody's face. And so I knew that they all thought I had done it. So I said to my lawyers from O'Melveny and Myers as they were leaving, I said, what do I do to protect myself? If somebody will go to this extent to produce a tape recording, to lie under oath, how do I protect myself? And I remember they said, oh, tape everything. And I said, you know, you really can't tape everything. You can't. You can try, but if you're in a bar and you're interviewing someone, if it's at a restaurant, if it's... You can't always. And I had to protect myself because that was a $2 million lawsuit. And the publisher was so terrified of Frank Sinatra that they would use any excuse to back out of this book. So how much of the legal fees did you have to bear then? 
100%. All mm-hmm. yours. Nothing the publisher didn't chip Not in. at that time. No, because they said, contract doesn't kick in until we have a manuscript. You haven't written a word. So it was hostile from the get-go. So this was fake news back before there was fake news. They had hired somebody to imitate your voice and create a fake tape. That's right. So I had to protect myself. And I then, after every interview I had, I would write a thank you note. I'd say, Dear Jack, Thanks so much for meeting me last Friday and our interview. I know it went an hour and a half longer than we thought, and I didn't get a chance to tell you at the time. I love the T-shirt you were wearing that said, so many books, so little time. And I know we did it in a really small room, but it was kind of cozy. Blah, 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 and thanks so much, Jack. Best ever, Kitty. Oh, P.S., can I get back to you to check on that one story you told me about Sinatra and Lana Turner? I can't find it in my notes, and I took them so fast. I Laying down a paper trail. Yeah. And you interviewed his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., who then denied the interview even took place. That's right. I heard that Frank Sinatra Jr. was coming to Washington, And he'd be here for a couple of days, so I called and asked if I could schedule an interview. And the person said, okay, will you be bringing a camera crew, she said. I said, no, not a a crew, uh, just a photographer. I hadn't even thought of it. I immediately called Stanley Tredick, and I said, Stanley, I've got this interview. You've got to come and take pictures because... I have to come with a photographer. He said, you don't have an interview with Frank Sinatra. This is after his father had sued me. I said, yes, I do. 2.30 Friday at the Hilton on the Hill. So off we go to interview Frank Sinatra. And the interview was great. We walked in, and Sinatra said, I have a little laryngitis. Can you sit closer to me. So I moved over closer. He said, I've got to sing tonight. I don't want to exercise the voice. And we sat down. I was taking notes, and I did have a tape recorder going. And he was talking and went on for about 30 minutes. And Stanley's a pro taking pictures. Finally, Sinatra said, He was talking about his father and Las Vegas connections and the mob and so forth. And he said, I know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And you know, in that millisecond, I'm thinking, aha, finally, I'll get respect. Nobody knows what's happened to Jimmy Hoffa. And this is perfect. I'm going to get the Pulitzer Prize. I even thought, I wonder what I should wear. Navy blue, do you think? With a, I don't know. And just as I'm seeing myself get the Pulitzer Prize, Stanley Treddick drops his cameras on the floor, slams himself into a chair, and says, Well, Jesus, man, what happened to him? And with that, Frank Sinatra Jr. looked at me, leapt out of the chair, and said, I. I've talked too much. And he ran in the room and locked the door. 
the PR person came out and said, you're going to have to leave. Leave. You've got to leave now. I said, no, no, no. My, and I threw Stanley under the bus. I said, he, no, no, he did it. I still have. I've got these questions I've got to ask. I've still got them. You have to leave now. So we were thrown out. Up until that minute, Stanley Tredick was my best friend. He was not my best friend as we were walking out the door. He looked at me and said, I said, don't even speak to me. Oh, he said, for God's sakes, he didn't know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. I, I couldn't even speak. I was so angry. We got down to the lobby. He said, oh, come on, get in the car. I said, no, I'm not driving with you. I don't want to talk to you. And I went out and I hailed a cab, took the cab home. My husband answered the door and I was like this, get out of my way and don't let him in. Stanley was running behind me. And um, Stanley told my husband what happened. And both of them were like, okay. A few weeks go by. I still didn't speak to him. Anyway, the book comes out, and Frank Sinatra Jr. denied giving me the interview. And the publisher, of course, believed him. And they called lawyers again. And Stanley called and said, I know you're not speaking to me, but you might if I tell you that I have a picture of you interviewing Frank Sinatra Jr., and your tape recorder is next to you. Oh, well, that was different. All is forgiven. All is, <laughs> mwah. So he produced the photograph and um, saved me. But let me ask you this. I'm a guy. You're a petite, blonde gal. How much of the fact that these publishing companies didn't believe you came from the fact that they were more likely to hear me assure them that I had had this interview as opposed to Kitty Kelly. Oh, so we're going on the trope of the dumb blonde. Well, yeah. Was there was your oh, publish, sure. publisher's company's ability, willingness to sell you out based, in fact, on the... On... I have to tell you that on the Frank Sinatra book, that was the first book where I had hit over a million-dollar advance. So we're talking some serious money at the time. And I don't know if the blonde curls factored into it or not. But have you, in, in your career, have you run into that? Sure. Or, and conversely, has it ever been an advantage to do that? I, yeah. I think both. Yeah. I do remember going to interview an FBI agent. We had just spoken on the phone again, about Sinatra. And he said, I'll meet you at such and such a place, such and such a time. And I went to the place, and there was a man standing there, and I remember he had a black raincoat. He had white hair, a uh, crew cut. And he really did look like an FBI agent. And I walked up to him and said, are you so-and-so? And he looked at me like, are you the one I talked to on the phone? And I said, uh-huh. And he looked at me and I said, sir, may I see some identification? <laughs> and he said, what? I said, could I see your identification? <laughs> so he showed me identification and he said, I didn't expect you. But it was great. Yeah. We sat down. It was a wonderful interview. Now, you do hundreds 
I have of to. interviews for yeah. each one of these books. I did. Um, 900, I think, for one of the books, were, right? It was almost 1,000 for yeah. the Frank Sinatra book. It took me forever and ever. But let me let me. Oh, that just triggers something. Tell me the story about his arrest on the morals charge. It's sort of the interview counterpart to Robert Caro talking about turning every page. Tell me how you tracked down that lady and what she said. Oh gosh, I, in doing research, I did spend a lot of time in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is where Sinatra was born and raised. But when I started the book, Frank Sinatra had given testimony in court and to Congress that he had never been arrested. And he was doing this to get his casino license renewed, and you couldn't get a renewal or a license had you ever been arrested. And Sinatra said that he had never been arrested. But the fact was he had been arrested, and he had spent three days in jail. And I forget exactly right now how I knew this, but the woman who had had him arrested was named Grace Garifanetis. But by the time I found her, her name had changed to Mary something, something or other. And she lived in Lodi, New Jersey. And then you think, oh, good, you have, well, I'll, I'll just call. And I thought, no, she'll hang up. Should I write a letter? Oh, she won't aunt. I did not know what to do, and I went to a friend, an old police reporter from Chicago, and he said, just go knock on her door. Do it around uh, dinner time. They're always home at dinner time. I thought, no, no, I can't. No. Anyway, I called my friend Stanley again, and I said, how would you feel about a ride to Lodi, New Jersey? So I told him my situation. He said, really, a morals charge against Frank Sinatra? He's alive. You're writing a book he doesn't want you to write. You think she's going to talk to you? I said, yeah, you got a point. But anyway, we finally drove to Lodi, New Jersey. We pulled up to the house. There was a statue, a, a plaster of Paris, white statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the porch. Stanley said, this it's not going to work. I was terrified. I couldn't get out of the car. It sounds No, it doesn't sound crazy at all. No, now, it doesn't at all. I'm but sure. I couldn't get out of the car. I was like, by now, I, we had driven from Washington, D.C. to Lodi, New Jersey, and I'm seeing the police come, Frank Sinatra's goons. I, I, anyway, it took me about 45 minutes to get out of Stan's car. And I walked to the door. I knocked on the door, and this older woman answered. And she looked at me, and she said, hello. And I said, hi, my name's Kitty Kelly. I'm writing a book on Frank Sinatra. I would so love to talk to you. But I was blah, blah, blah. Every sentence ran into the other. There was no period in the sentences. And she looked at me, and she said, well, you better come in and have a glass of water. <laughs> oh, I said, thank you so much. And got in, sat down. I pulled out the newspaper clipping of the only newspaper that had recorded this arrest on a morals charge. And in 1939, it was a morals charge if you 
had sex with a woman, promised her marriage, and didn't follow through. And that's the basis of the lawsuit. She said, yes, that happened. And then she sat down and she told me all about her affair with Frank Sinatra, how she would drive to Hoboken in her car, how Dolly Sinatra couldn't stand her. She went on and on and on, and the time went, and she confirmed everything. And about two hours later, I was in love with her. I was absolutely (laughs) in love with this woman. And I said, can I ask you, why has this story never been told before? And she looked at me and she said, nobody asked. Well, that was it for me. And I sent her a plant and I thanked her (laughs) so much. I mean, I loved the woman, right? (laughs) Absolutely loved her. Well, the book comes out. And I had stayed in touch with her until about the last few months before publication. But we had been in touch back and forth. I'd confirmed things. She loved her plant. I loved her. Well, when the book came out, her niece, her great niece, wrote to me and said, I'm one in the family that's very proud that my great aunt talked to you, but this has been a source of shame. It was a big Italian Catholic family. It's been a source of shame for many of the older people in the family still to that day. She said, but we're very proud that she talked to you, and I want to thank you very much. Long story, sorry, but... No, no, that, it's, the, it's the flip side of Caro and turn every page. Is, you know, nobody ever asked me that nobody. question before. Go knock on the door in the middle of the night. Bob Woodward would be proud of you. <laughs> but I, it was so hard for me to get over the fear of rejection, and that's what it is. And think about it in life. Most of the time we hesitate. It is because of fear of rejection. That was veteran biographer Kitty Kelly in conversation with bio member and author Jack Farrell, recorded on February 7th, 2020 in Washington, D.C. Tune in next week to hear part two of this interview. To hear more about bio, or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. Bye.